Let's just pray for a moment. Heavenly Father, we ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts will be acceptable in your sight. For we ask in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen. Now this morning we want to turn together to these opening uh, words in the first epistle of Peter. And what we're just uh, talking about this morning is about the man who wrote this letter and uh, the significance of uh, Peter to uh, these Christians who are being persecuted. So we're talking about a writer to persecuted Christians. You know, a number of years ago when working in the Highlands of Scotland, I met a man who had been a pastor in a church in the south of England. Now, I couldn't tell you exactly what kind of prophetic views he held, but at the time when Britain was in the process of joining a common, he became convinced that a revival of the old Roman Empire was imminent and that a terrible persecution was going to be unleashed against every Christian south of the Caledonian Canal. So what did he do? He opted out. He uprooted his family. He fled to a little croft away in a remote highland village, feeling assured that this modern Roman Empire that he imagined would not come any further than the first Roman Empire had come. That was to the Caledonian Canal. Now that's what we might call an extreme withdrawal mode attitude to persecution and the threat of persecution pressing the panic button and flying to the hills or to some monastic retreat. Another extreme reaction that many have taken in this kind of situation is just simply to let their hair down and say, well, if we haven't long to live, we might as well make the best of it and have as much fun as we can. That's what we might call the eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die philosophy. Well, these are just reactions of a fallen nature, the fallen nature in man, when threats are made against them. The thing we need to ask and study in this letter is, how does the author deal with this kind of situation? Well, Peter doesn't yield to either of these attitudes. He reacts as a Christian should. He views the difficulties and the pressures and the threats in the light of the promises of our Lord Jesus Christ. He views the difficulties and he warns these Christians. Think it not strange concerning the fiery trial that is to try you. As though some strange thing happened to you. You see, what he's just simply saying is that persecution is not something strange or alien to believers. This is what Christians ought to expect in this world. Furthermore, it's not something that can ultimately destroy a Christian. You see, even where hostility terminates life here, what is that? But the entrance to glory. And what glory? As Peter goes on in chapter uh, 4 to say, but rejoice 
Inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. In other words, Christian hope and joy are not conditioned by earthly circumstances or dependent upon material well-being. Christian happiness doesn't depend upon happenings or earthly possessions. What does it depend on? It depends on the Christian's relationship with his Lord. You see, as Christians, we should live at all times as those who are not ashamed to belong to the one whose kingdom is not of this world. We should live as those whose feet are shod and whose lamps are trimmed, as Jesus told us, while we await the return of our Lord or the termination of our life here. It shouldn't need severe persecution or specific threats of death to motivate us to holy living and greater love for Christ. So this letter, while it's of initial interest to those who are actually in the midst of an intense suffering for Christ, and also of great value, it is also of great value to all believers who have to live in this evil world and where we're constantly exposed to trials and temptations from that evil triumvirate that every Christian has to contend with. The world, the flesh, and the death. You see, it's just as Paul reminded Timothy. All, all who live godly in Christ Jesus. And that's what every Christian is intended to do. All who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. There will always be hostility of some kind for every believer. Now this morning, what we want to focus on here is the person who wrote about such things. You know, when you know something about the life and calling and the character of an author, you can appreciate better his aims and his desires in, in writing. You can understand better why he writes as he does, what he aims to achieve, and how he goes about his task. So our question this morning is just, who is this person who's writing this particular letter? Well, the first thing to note is that it was typical in first century letters for a writer to identify himself. That is, to put a signature to it. Now, we do much the same thing in our culture, but there's one difference. That is where the first century man would sign his letter at the beginning. We always sign it at the end. And that's why you get Peter signing in in the very first sentence of uh, this letter here. Now in his signature to this epistle, I want you to notice that the author directs our attention to two things. The first is his name. And the second is his mandate for writing. And both of these are highly significant. They tell us a lot about the person who wrote this letter. And that's what we want to explore. So let's look at them a bit carefully. 
first of all looking at his name and then at his mandate for writing. His name? Well, he simply calls himself in the very first word, Peter. But he wasn't always called by that name. You see, he grew up with the name Simon. That's the name that was given to him at his birth. His use of the word Peter here shows that he has now accepted and adopted another name that was given to him, given to him by Jesus himself, and by which Jesus said he would become known. Jesus gave this name to this man, you may remember, in that first memorable occasion by the seaside, the seashore, when his, his brother Andrew brought him to meet Jesus. And Jesus looked at Peter, and obviously he looked on him as a future disciple when he spoke his first words to him. It was initially in the form of a question, you, you are called Simon? The son of John, or Jonas, you will be called Kephas. Now, the name Kephas, it just simply means when translated, Peter. And the name means a stone or a rock. That's what we need to keep in mind. You see, whenever Jesus called this man to follow him, he knew just how fickle and how impetuous Simon was. And he wanted him to learn that the disciplines and the siftings and the sufferings that he would come through in obeying his call to follow Jesus were designed eventually to effect a change in him that would make him strong and rock-like in his faith and witness to Jesus. I put it to you that that's why Jesus gave him this particular name. You see, Jesus had become the rock of his salvation as Old Testament Christians, Old Testament believers uh, called themselves. But Simon was also to learn that in times of difficulty and hostility, Jesus could also be to him a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. He mentions that himself in chapter 2 here in verse 8. And you find it also in Paul's, le Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter 9 and 33. And they're both quoting from Isaiah 8, 14. You see, Jesus knew that there would be times when Simon would become fearful, afraid, and not want to identify himself with Jesus. He would try to avoid the cross that Jesus said we have to take up in order to follow him. But also, having become a follower of Jesus, Peter would soon come to realize that Jesus was at work in his life to transform him into his own likeness. 
Jesus would work to suppress and destroy more and more the expressions of that old natural sinful life and to build into this man something of his own godly purpose and rock-like character. In other words, Simon was to become Peter, the rock. Throughout the Gospels, we notice that Simon and Peter are names that alternate as far as this man's concerned. We often find them together as name and surname, as it seems they were intended to be, from Mark 3.16 and also Acts 10. It's only very occasionally that we see them together later on. There are one or two examples. One occasion is the introduction to the second epistle, where Peter calls himself Simon Peter. But the thing to notice, you see, is that alongside the gradual change in the use of the name, as far as this man's concerned, there's a corresponding change in the life of the man himself. See, during his three years with Jesus and the other disciples, he did show initial evidences of commitment, discernment, and devotion in his relationship with Jesus. I'm sure you remember the case at Caesarea Philippi at the beginning of Jesus' ministry when he was discussing his identity with the disciples. You recall he asked them, who do men say that I am? And it was Simon Peter who replied. He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus' response to Peter's answer is very revealing. He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Well, that indicated promising progress in Peter's discipleship. But almost immediately, we read, Jesus then began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and the third day be raised. And guess what? The text goes on to say, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, to rebuke Jesus, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Talk about trying to avoid suffering, trying to avoid persecution, trying to avoid the cross. Here was Peter actually trying to steer Jesus himself whom he had just confessed to be the Son of God, away from that very path. Be it far from you, Lord. No need to go that way. Jesus turned and rebuked Peter. And the words he used are very, very severe, but they're also very revealing. He said, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. That amounted to saying, whose side are you really on, Peter? Who are you really serving? 
Now that indicated how much progress was still needed in Peter's discipleship. The rock in him was still very, very shaky. Now we could cite more incidents in the experience of this disciple where love and devotion to Jesus were marred and spoiled by fears and failures in his following of Jesus. It was only after many siftings, testings and trials during his years with Jesus in the flesh and especially after his repentance and recommission in that post-resurrection encounter with Jesus in Galilee and also after his endowment with the power of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost that we find the Peter, the rock-like character beginning to dominate his life and service. And there was still the occasional back down even after that that deserved correction. In Galatians chapter 2, 11 and 12, the Apostle Paul reminds us of one there. But more and more, Peter was beginning to manifest the solid quality of endurance and fidelity to his Lord. You see, in his character, as well as in his calling, he was now becoming Peter, the rock, ready to stand fast in the faith, ready to endure suffering and rejection for Christ's sake, ready to embrace affliction, stripes and imprisonment, yet ready even to be crucified and die for his Lord, as Jesus had prophesied that he would do in John 21. Well, I trust you're beginning to see the direction we're pointing to in the relation of Peter's name to this letter. You see, the disciple of Jesus, whose behavior we have briefly sketched, is the same man who's now writing to instruct and to guide and to encourage fellow believers who are called to travel that same road persecution and hostility but Peter's a changed man now he has not only sat at the feet of Jesus to learn his word he has been disciplined by Jesus in the school of life to throw off the old impetuosity and the old fears and to become more like his master firm, rock-like. She is now better equipped to engage in this kind of letter-writing ministry to persecuted believers. He's a more humble man, a more courageous man, a more loving man, a more experienced man, a more Christ-like man. He's more of a Peter now, more rock-like. He's living now more like the master who had called him and more like the name that his master had given him. So that's the significance of Peter's name as far as this letter is concerned. The other thing I mentioned was his mandate. 
And he goes on to say, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, in a magazine I read many years ago, it was actually the year 1961 because the magazine was dated, it was the Christian magazine, 1961. And it was a man who was engaged in evangelistic work at that time, Major Ian Thomas. And uh, he made a comment in that article concerning the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And this is what he said. He says, Paul loved to preface his apostles by introducing himself as an apostle. Not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ. And then he says, that was his mandate. That was all he needed to know. And so he could go on to say, the Holy Ghost witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. Neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. And describing the effect of this and Paul's attitude to his task, the writer went as far as to say he had become invulnerable. He had a God-given sense of vocation. You see, what this writer was asserting was that the commission that Paul had received from Jesus was more dear and more important to him than ease or comfort or life itself in this world. To be sent by the Son of God to be an ambassador for him in the courts of time bringing the message of salvation to men was an incomparable honor. And you see, the very same was now true of Peter. And he too signs himself an apostle of Jesus Christ. That was his mandate also. Now just notice briefly the things that he affirms in this mandate. First, he wants immediately to affirm his relationship with Jesus. See, this is the man who when Christ was arrested and brought to Pilate's judgment hall, he followed him afar off. And when he was in the judgment hall, he was asked by a young maid if he was one of Christ's followers. And he cried, I don't know the man. I don't know what you're talking about. Hard to believe, isn't it? But that's how it was. But there's no hesitancy now. That same Jesus has become the sole reason for Peter's existence. Like Paul, he could now say... To me to live is Christ. To die is gain. The beauty, the worth, the greatness of Jesus shines through in every sentence of this letter. I made a list of all the ways in which he describes Jesus in the letter, but I haven't time to list them all for you. But read it again for yourself. See the the eulogies 
on the identity of his beloved Savior and Lord that he pours out. So that's the first thing he's affirming in this mandate. He wants to affirm his relationship with Christ. And then the second thing is that he wants to affirm his authority in Christ's calling on his life. See, the word apostle commonly means the sent one. Someone who has received a commission, someone who has the authority of the sender and who is responsible to the sender. An apostle, therefore, is someone who is sent to fulfill a definite task and who acts with the full authority of the sent one. He speaks in the name of the one who has sent him, as though the sender himself was present and speaking. See, the apostles were sent out in this unique manner to lay the foundation of the New Testament church. And we have this apostolic testimony now committed to writing in the pages of the New Testament. The ministry of the apostles in the New Testament sense did not need to be perpetuated once the words were committed to writing for future generations. See, in the early church, apostleship was more confined to the original 12 disciples, including Paul. So, in signing himself an apostle of Jesus Christ, Peter is indicating that the message he is sending is something he has received from Christ himself. And it's written in the name of Christ and with the full authority of his Lord from heaven. Now, in this context, it's just worth noticing and passing that Peter doesn't claim any authority whatsoever above what was conferred on the other apostles. There have been many people since who have tried to affirm that. But Peter doesn't do that. He wrote this letter later on in his ministry. It was about 63 AD when he wrote it. And if he had been endowed with any kind of superior supremacy, over the other disciples and over Christ's flock, it would most certainly have been evident here and would have been asserted in these letters. But there's not even a hint of it. See, that's the second thing that Peter wants to affirm in his mandate. He wants to affirm his authority in Christ's calling as well as his relationship with Jesus. And the other thing is to affirm his obedience Christ. Now let me refer you in this respect to two scriptures. The first one is in Luke chapter 22 and verses 31 and 32. That was the occasion whenever Jesus forewarned Peter of a very severe trial that he was going to meet just coming up to the crucifixion. He said, Simon, Simon, note the names by which he calls them. Simon, Simon, Satan, Satan has desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But then follows the promise. But I have prayed for you, that your faith will not fail. But that wasn't all that Jesus had to say. 
he added a further word of commission to Peter. He said, when you are converted, that is, when you're restored, Peter, you're going to fail. But when you are restored or turned back, the word means, strengthen your brethren. In other words, Jesus was saying to him that out of his own siftings and sufferings and out of his own trials and failings would come a greater understanding of fellow believers in their trials. He would be better placed to encourage them and strengthen them. And you see, that's exactly what he's doing here in writing this letter. It demonstrates his obedience to the word of God and his desire to strengthen his brethren. And the second scripture, which emphasizes this, is the well-known passage in John chapter 21. After the resurrection, Jesus met the disciples in the seashore there after they had returned from a fruitless night of fishing. And you recall that after they had finished eating of the draught of fishes that the Lord then provided, Jesus turned to Peter. And he turned to him with a threefold challenge of love. And again, notice the name that he uses. He doesn't use the name that he had given him, Peter. He says, Simon, do you love me? Simon, do you love me? Simon, do you love me more than these? The point we want to note here is that after each of the three questions about loving Jesus and Peter's response to them, there follows the commission or the recommission of Jesus. Jesus says each time, he says, first of all, feed my lambs. That is, if you love me, as you say and then secondly, he says, feed my sheep. And the third time he emphasizes it again, feed my sheep. And you see, once more, as Peter sits down to write this letter, what he's doing is he's demonstrating his fidelity to that task and to that command of Jesus. He's obeying his master now, no matter what it costs. He's anxious that the lambs and the sheep of Christ's flock should be fed. In chapter 5 of the first epistle here, he, he, he takes up the theme again. And once more he shows the same concern when he, he exhorts the elders in these churches. He says, feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof. Not by constraint, but willingly. Not for filthy lucre, that is, not for money, but of a ready mind. Not as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to his flock. Peter wasn't being put in any superior position here. You're not to relate to your fellow believers as like some... Archbishop or Pope or something like that. He says, you're to relate to them as fellow believers, being an example to them of godliness and fidelity to the word of God. 
And when the chief shepherd shall appear, he says, you will receive a crown of glory. You see, that's the Peter coming out now in all its fullness, isn't it? In Peter's life. Not only has his name been changed, but God has taken his new disciple, Simon, and he has changed his character into something of the likeness of his own. Rock-like, firm, issuing fidelity and faith along the way. Well, in concluding, I don't think we need to apply all this in any detail. The message is evident, isn't it? To our own hearts and minds. But let me just put a few questions here to think, for you to think about just as we finish. First of all, if you're a professing believer, like Peter, are you still struggling with fears and failures when you're called to identify yourself with Jesus and to acknowledge his lordship in your life? When conversation comes up about Christianity and so on, whether it's at school or in your workplace or where, do you just shy away? No, I don't want to take part in that. Don't want to be identified in that way. Another question, are you submitting to Christ's word and to the disciplines that he brings into your life in order to make you more like himself? Or like Peter did sometimes, do you want to run away from them too? And another question, are you seeking to encourage and strengthen those who are facing similar difficulties and hostilities around you? Do you stand with your fellow Christians? Or do you shy away from them too when the going gets tough? just adds up to this are you living up to the name that Jesus has given you and given to all of us the name Christian or it means Christ's one to be like him is his purpose are you seeking to live up to that name If you are an unbeliever here this morning, let me put a couple of questions to you too. Is the fear of man still going to win the battle in your heart and conscience every time you hear the gospel proclaimed? Maybe someone here this morning in that battle, that kind of battle is going on in your heart and mind just now. It's always like that when we're faced with Christ's gospel. But are you going to let that situation continue? Again, will the fading attractions of this world continue to have more appeal for you than the glory that Peter speaks of here? 
the glory that fades not away. Let me exhort you this morning to embrace this Jesus as your Savior and begin to follow him as your Lord. And he will give you a new name. And then he'll begin to change you into his own likeness, as he did with Peter. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you once again for your word that you have given to us. Thank you for these words inspired by the Holy Spirit long ago and uttered by your apostles, those whom you called, and those who came through such experiences as many of these that they were writing to came through, and as many of us, indeed all of us in some way, go through. Lord, we pray that you will help us to take these words to heart and help us to walk in the light of them through your grace alone, in Jesus. Amen.